All right. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Unfazed, Unedited Podcast, where we provide commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, hers pronouns. And y'all know who I'm here with, Dr. Lisa, my other half of my brain that we finish each other's sentences and send each other the same memes and don't even realize it person. This is my person, y'all. Um, how, are you, how are you doing? And uh, how's the week going so far? I am doing great. Uh, pronouns she, her. Um, it's Wednesday and it is almost the middle of January. So <laughs> time is flying. It didn't apparently decide to take a vacation um, as we moved into 2024. But uh, yeah, doing good. Looking forward to today's discussion. We've already had our little pre-chat about what we're going to talk about. So hopefully we will... Uh, get those uh, synapses fly firing again um, and give you some mm -hmm. fodder to chew on for the rest of the week. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, Lisa, I think, you know, our first phase is a really important one because I think oftentimes, even for those of us who are supportive when there is some type of violence against the black community, black male community in particular, when uh, law enforcement is involved, there's a lot of hype when the videos or the evidence of the situation occur and then it's kind of like oh okay we can forget about it because out of sight out of mind type of situation there um and so my hope for this first phase is for us to continue that through line of what's going on in regards to the response uh from tyree nichols murder uh, it's been a year now uh since the scorpion special unit uh, down in memphis all five indicted, one pled guilty, the other four pled not guilty. Um, and we know that we're going to be following trials later on this year. But I think what was really interesting, when I opened up my social media, CNN uh, chopped up a kind of a press release, if you will, of the new DOJ guidance for specialized police teams. And look, y'all, y'all don't have time to read it unless you happen to be someone who is in criminal justice, in any of this uh, policing work, you may want to take a look at this. But for the rest of us that are relatively novice and civilian uh, to specialized units, this is a 72 page document uh, that comes as a result of this, trying to give some guidance for specialized police teams. And I do think this document is important. Uh, they touch on several main stages that folks need to look at as, in regards to guiding cities as far as how they actually utilize and deploy the special units. Um, so we can do a little more of a deep dive into this, Lisa. But what's really concerning to me is that I've been in those situations before where I was in the car driving past someone who was pulled over who happened to have a lot of melanin probably was a uh, male. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, if this is like three police cars deployed for a busted taillight, I got a major problem with this, right? And so I'm thinking about that to the nth degree with something like this, where it's one person and you have an entire special unit with very special and important skills deployed on one human being. And so I appreciate the guidance that they're giving, but it almost feels like a we're, we're stepping over something here of is that really necessary for one or two people that don't have specialized skills? Um, 
and deploying an entire unit. So yeah, I, I'm kind of torn on this. More guidance may be an effort in missing the point, but I'm not sure yet. I need to dive into the document a bit more. But what do you think initially, Lisa? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the guidance is trying to support law enforcement agencies that are considering getting a special unit of whatever kind and or have one and they're reviewing it, right? So they're trying to give them food for thought around what do you need to consider? What are the changes you might need to make? But that is separate and apart from how you dispatch the unit, right? Which is what I think you're talking about. So, you know, as a law enforcement agency, you need to ask yourself the question, do we even need this? Like, what purpose does this serve? In what ways are we kind of reinforcing problematic stereotypes about groups of people or parts of the city or this belief that there needs to be this kind of different response for particular situations? Um, and so I would think that in some cases or in many cases, the answer should actually be no, right? So then you don't even then you don't even have a special unit to deploy in the situation like with um, Tyree Nichols, right? Um, but if you do have said unit, right, and you're not getting rid of it, then your question, I think, looms much larger, right? Like if you have a single person um, for a traffic stop, and I believe the, is the alleged issue at hand with Tyree Nichols was quote unquote reckless driving, right? Do you right. need to then deploy a five person special unit going by the name of Scorpion, right? Uh, um, prob right. Probably not. Um, mm -hmm. And then one of the things I was reading in the NPR article was that these units that are akin to the Scorpion unit in Memphis have names like that, right? Crush, yes. Wolfpack, yes. right? Like, so they're already being set up just kind of in the nomenclature as aggressive. <laughs> Mm, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know so that is even something like why would you need a wolf pack group for example to to go to a traffic stop like i just i mean it's not that i know that traffic stops can be very dangerous for police officers mm -hmm. but yeah it does feel like you're right that there is a thread here that perhaps needs to be pulled that isn't being pulled mm -hmm. um, yeah or at yeah. least not we're not aware of it being pulled i guess yeah, yeah. Well, and <laughs> it's so funny that you're even mentioning that uh, because I've I've been a big fan of shows like SWAT and St and SEAL Team for a very long time because it does uh, give some humanity to these folks that are in special units that do really great jobs and they really have to think critically even in very high pressure situations. Um, and what I'm thinking about, it's so funny that you just mentioned like Scorpion and you know all these highly aggressive names, but I've seen, witnessed, and have friends that have served in particular units that did not have aggressive names. Like, you can't have Bravo. I mean, Bravo team, whatever team name, it just happens to delineate between Alpha, Bravo, etc. Why does it have to be so aggressive? Well, you know, I, I just think it's interesting that a name doesn't make you necessarily stronger, weaker, unskilled. I think it's more about skill than anything. But, you know, to your great point, it does have a particular look in communities. And what does it mean when you're dispatching the scorpion unit on one human being? The crush, the wolf pack on one or two human beings. So, you know, I just think we, I, I want to dive into the document a bit more, but I do think that we need to think critically about who is making the decision to dispatch? What are they thinking about in the moment? 
And I know it feels like Monday morning quarterbacking it, but we do need to think beforehand rather than always in retrospect, especially when it's predominantly focused on particular communities that are black, brown, indigenous, et cetera. That to me is extremely concerning. Like if a, if a SWAT team is pulling up on a kid's basketball court, because most of those kids are black and brown, highly problematic. Like I'm thinking about instances like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I can answer the, the who's deploying the team decision based on my experience with law enforcement and that, you know, you have a call taker, someone who takes a call usually, and then you have a dispatcher and that person dispatches, but the dispatcher is following policy. So it's dip. So you've got the person that would have deployed, like made the decision to deploy the Scorpion team in that situation, but they are not like independently making that choice bait. Like they're looking at probably the scenario or what's being reported. And then they're then based on practice and policy within the Memphis police department, they're making that choice. So it isn't necessarily the call. It's definitely not the call taker and it isn't really the dispatcher either. Right. It's going to be kind of the higher up um, echelons of the police department who wrote the policy and created the criteria. So that also needs to be questioned. Like what criteria are you creating um, to dispatch these groups? And I think about Scorpion, right? Like I'm thinking about a Scorpion, right? So it's just, they sting, right? So like there's a precision, there's a precision to the sting, right? They're kind of small, but mighty, right? In that sense, they can do a lot of damage um, with a with a very kind of precise incision. And so that's why I'm thinking they probably named the team, the Scorpion team. But then you like, then you send five of them to a single person on a traffic stop. And you're like, well, that doesn't feel very precise. <laughs> that doesn't really fit the kind of definition of a sting, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it feels a bit more like a sledgehammer. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I I do think that, you know, that's part of it is that, you know, what happens when the stereotype serves your cause, right? You know, what happens when, you know, the the notion of the stereotype serves your cause and you want people to know, hey, you know, don't do this, don't mess with us, don't think you're going to get away with something because we have this particular, uh, literally killer instinct and skill set to ensure that we control this group these people that that to me is a little inhumane (laughs) to put it mildly inhumane um so yeah i i just think it's an interesting concept um i don't want to see this uh effect or continued effect on particular communities that it's just not necessary. It's not always necessary. Now, sometimes it is. So please don't go running down the street saying that Shauna said that we don't need specialized teams. Of course we need specialized teams, but I think the the intention and the consideration that, that uh, like um, kind of bookends the entire deployment of those specialized teams, yeah, it does need more consideration. Yeah, the whole pipeline, the whole pipeline. And I think about, well, I mean, Memphis is under investigation by the DOJ for a patent and practice investigation, Mm -hmm. looking at whether there's a patent and practice of excessive force. And that's true for a lot of law enforcement agencies nationwide, right? But those Mm -hmm. pattern and practice investigations are um, highly dependent upon who is in power. 
So with a new administration, potentially, um, with the election coming up this year, it is entirely possible that all of those investigations into law enforcement um, departments nationally related to excessive force could just get stopped, right? Right. Because the attorney general runs the Department of Justice, the attorney general's in the cabinet, and uh, yeah, it depends on kind of your perspective on those things. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that actually is a good segue mm, into, fa- mm-hmm. into phase two because All right. I didn't do that on purpose, folks. <laughs> but um, smooth, Lisa, smooth. <laughs> we um, wanted to talk a little bit about the upcoming election, um, but specifically yes. the Iowa caucuses will have, when this podcast airs, will have happened yesterday. And yesterday was also MLK Day. Right. And so I was curious that why, why would a state um, schedule its caucuses for the Republican Party, the caucuses for the Republican Party on MLK Day, a national, a federal holiday? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Iowa is a predominantly white state. It does tend to lean more conservative, more Republican. But so I did a little digging and it sounds like they have um a, a, like election code or it's or state law, or there's some regulation that requires that the caucuses in Iowa have to happen at least eight days prior to the next closest primary or caucus elsewhere. So the one after Iowa is New Hampshire, and that's happening on January 23rd. So oh. Iowa couldn't yeah. bump their caucus to the 16th because that would only be seven days ahead of New Hampshire. So it had to right. be the 15th, but it could have been earlier than earlier. The 15th. Yeah. So it yeah. could have been the Friday before or the Thursday before, but they didn't move it. Now, I don't, there might be another reason why they didn't move it, right? But I just think it's pretty interesting that the first caucus for the Republican Party in the United States is happening on MLK Day when we know that um, we, you know, the issue of race and racism and racial discrimination and all of the crap around critical race theory that's been put out there, like that's a big issue, right? And yeah, you're holding yeah. your caucuses on a really important and prestigious holiday when it comes to racial equity. So then mm-hmm. I go to Nikki Haley. How do you feel about Nikki Haley, Shauna? Oh, here we go. Here we go, y'all. Here we go. Well, I do think what's what's really interesting, and I don't think any of us, unless you're a meteorologist, could predict the weather is not that great this week. So if they did bump it back a bit, I mean, we've had flooding here on the East Coast. Um, my cousin, uh, she's a, a higher up at uh, Iowa State. They're building snowmen out there on, on campus. So I know they're having a little rougher weather this week. But again, thinking ahead of time, um, you know, what could it have looked like if it wasn't on MLK Day, number one? Um, I know they have lots of voting traditions out in Iowa. Um, Lisa, something that you just reminded me of, even with voting, Maryland has already sent the letters out to us with websites, uh, a return envelope, and even a QR code that you can scan if you want to go ahead and get your mail-in ballot right now. So Maryland is kind of like on it right now in regards to voting. But Nikki Haley, look, let me tell you something. This I'm trying to figure out if this is like the best case of self-hatred and dissonance I've seen in a very long time. Because, you know, 
anyone who has done their research on her and knows about her uh, background, her upbringing and so forth, you know, it's very interesting that yes, you know, service governor of South Carolina, you know, Republican party, et cetera, Indian American, right? Yet has the name Nikki Haley, but Nimarata is her birth name. And so it just gets very flustering and frustrating for me to think about a Indian woman in a leadership role who clearly doesn't necessarily embrace all of that on a regular basis and doesn't see the dissonance between her experiences and the experiences of other people in this country, especially when questioned about the history of slavery, the history of exclusion, any of that. It's like there's no connection to any of that in her. You talk about brain synapses firing, brain synapses aren't connecting the dots between similar experiences. And so for me, she's just a conundrum. Um, it was very uh, violent to my experience not to name, because if you're not going to name that the Civil War was about the institution of slavery, then what the hell was it about then? What else was it about exactly? So, you know, avoiding saying it, I think, was not a courageous approach to anything. And it just flat out was not accurate. Because what else was it about? So, you know, I just think the avoidance, um, we, we have seen other people in this country recently get into a whole lot of trouble avoiding what was blatantly clearly uh, evident and should have been spoken to. And she does it consistently. The Civil War happened to be the most recent time she did it. But I'm like, come on. And you're from South Carolina, too. We've done podcasts in the past, Lisa, where I visited South Carolina, and it's one of the most blatantly connective places that names their connection with the institution of slavery because of its ports, because of its waterways, uh, because of all of those connections. It is, I visited a former slave market in South Carolina. So how can you hail from a state that has clear connections, but you're not making a connection to the civil war? I don't get it. And, and I don't want to get it yeah, because she doesn't yeah. want to get it. She doesn't want to get it. Yeah. Do you think that she doesn't get it or you think she just doesn't say it because she doesn't see that as um, a narrative that would make her competitive electorally, right? Given, given that she's not a Democrat, right? So she's not marketing herself to a group of people that tend to be a little bit more open to talking about racism and the history of the United States. I say tend to, because that is not always the case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, but so she just doesn't say it out loud. And I just, you know, I think there could be a piece of that there. I mean, she's an intelligent woman, clearly. And she's also been acculturated into a white supremacist culture, right? So I know why she has the name Nikki. Because yeah, she yeah, probably yeah. got made fun of, or she probably got tons of people saying, hi, what is your name? Where are you from? Where did you come from? All of that shit, right? Like through childhood and into her adult years. So Nikki's just easier, right? Like I get that. But to your point, like she's denying kind of a part of herself in doing that. But then it's also so complicated because so few women and even fewer women of color are running for office generally 
But running for president or kind of higher level positions mm -hmm. in the US government, I mean, they're just yeah. not there, right? So then it also feels complicated to critique her in a way that we might not critique other mm -hmm. candidates. Well, and you know, yes. And let's think about the complications too of everything that she carries with, you know, yes, being an immigrant, yes, having, uh, um, being able to, having the ability to pass physically from perception. Um, also too, I'm not sure whether she fully embraces it or not, because, you know, a lot of people, if you think about the South and you think about just, you know, gubernatorial races, I believe if I'm not mistaken, but you can look it up. Um, I think she's only like the third non-white governor for a Southern state, my home state included Doug Wilder first, of course, in the country, and then uh, Bobby Jindal um, in uh, Louisiana. So, you know, even with that, I'm like, okay, how much assimilation needed to happen in order to be elected governor in a Southern state where there's a lot of reality that faces you and there's a lot of folks that uh, don't want to hear the history. They don't want to make the connections. And so, you know, part of me wants to agree with you to say that, you know, maybe she knows, but she's playing the political game. And then there are other times where I'm, I'm stunned by the ignorance of folks and I shouldn't be. So, you know, I, I think this could also yeah. be a yeah. great time to play what we've talked about often, Lisa, about um, playing oppression Olympics in that Right. How much leeway does it get you to be read and perceived as a white woman running versus a woman of color running mm -hmm. in a Southern state for these high level positions? That also plays into it. So it gets messier and messier. Yeah, yeah. And of course, she made that non-statement about slavery in right. a town hall that was related to this Iowa caucus, right? And, you know, predominantly white state there. So she's making some choices. And I want to return to your comment that you made a few minutes ago about it not being courageous, right? Mm -hmm. So if she does know, and she's making these calculated choices based on a desire to be elected, um, mm -hmm. or, you know, get the nomination, there's a cost to that, right? Absolutely. There's a psychological cost there's an ethical cost there's a moral cost and mm -hmm. the you know uh, ob, ob, i can never say this word obfuscation mm -hmm. of um the real reason for the uh civil war mm. you know that will leave a residue i think i mean i don't know oh, yeah. that will follow her right oh um, yeah so absolutely absolutely yeah yeah so I don't know how that's going to play, but that's such a big one that I doubt very seriously people are ever going to forget that mm -hmm, non-statement. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just think it's going to continue to haunt her um, in several ways. So, yeah. But I can't say I've ever been a Nikki Haley fan. Um, after going to South Carolina, I have a better understanding of their treatment and uh, naming of enslavement and... I don't know. I just feel like coming from that state, that's a state that still is okay with naming it. Like you got to think about my mindset coming from Virginia where, you know, Monticello and Thomas Jefferson language was still using uh, servant when it was enslavement versus South Carolina, who still gives you a tour of their slave markets and looking at their ports and saying, this is part of the history. No, it's not pretty, but it's, 
also not to be stepped over or excluded either. It just, it's mind blowing for someone to come from that state um, and just not name it, not naming it, you know? So, well, look, let's, let's get into this um, phase three, because I think, especially with it being January, y'all are hearing this right in the middle of January. And what's very cool, especially in the higher ed space, uh, in African-American communities, in HBCU life, in actually the experience of underrepresented folks at PWIs as well, predominantly white institutions. January is overrun with anniversary dates of what we call the Divine Nine, uh, which are many of the Black Greek-lettered sororities and fraternities, mine included. So by the time y'all hear this, it may be a day or two after my sorority's uh, anniversary. So I think it's important to name that while we're in January. And it's a lot of them, y'all. Y'all not going to remember them if you, uh, unless you're someone who is Greek. Some folks don't even know the Greek alphabet. So please don't think that you're going to recognize all of these names. But I do think it's important to name in the month of January. We have on January 5th. Uh, Kappa Alpha Psi, shout out to the Kappas for their anniversary. Uh, one of my favorites, Ryan Clark, uh, so uh, a former Pittsburgh Steeler, he's a Kappa. Uh, January 9th, Phi Beta Sigma, uh, their anniversary as well. My uh, my son's godfather is uh, Sigma. January 13th, Delta Sigma Theta. I have so many close, close, close friends who are Delta. Shout out to y'all. Of course, my beloved Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Um, and then on January 16th, which is probably when y'all are going to hear this episode, uh, the Sisters of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority um, will be celebrating. So, you know, given that, I think it's important to name in January um, when we have lots of stuff going on. Yeah, we got political stuff going on, but we also have Dr. King's uh, birthday, Dr. King, a very prominent member of Alpha Phi Alpha as well, uh, Coretta Scott King, one of my sores. So it's a lot going on in January for the Divine Nine. And, you know, it's a culture, Lisa, you and I have talked about quite a bit where, for example, if correct me if I'm wrong, community colleges are not part of the higher ed experience in the UK. HBCUs are not part of the higher ed experience in the UK, and I'm sure Greek life is not part of the experience in the UK. Nope, so we're, nope. we're just throwing lots of things at you, Lisa. Yep. yep, yep. I am constantly perplexed by the Greek system. Um, and yeah, we've had lots of conversations about it because I'm like, what does that mean? Why do you do that? Yes. Tell me again why why people join fraternities and sororities. Um, so uh -huh. I've got yeah I've got my Britishness that works against me here in terms of knowledge. So I'm often asking Shauna what might be otherwise perceived as kind of stupid questions because I really have no background or history in it and find it just fascinating. But I've definitely been schooled, <laughs> and um, what I would say is I you know. I think it is important to recognize the Divine Nine. Um, and there are a lot of them that were founded in January. It's so interesting to me um, because Greek life is so very dominated by whiteness, right? When we think about the mm -hmm. long, long history of Greek life, we think about sororities and fraternities that are supported on college campuses across the country. Right. Um, there's a lot of whiteness. 
and we know that Greek life offers mentorship, support, um, a foot in the door, um, references, mm. job opportunities, right? And so that those connections, so aside from the, what I think is ridiculous components of the Greek system, right, it makes right. sense to me. It makes sense to me why there are fraternities and sororities that are specifically for black and African-American people, for Latinx people, right? Like why they have evolved. Like, and I get that mm -hmm. from an abstract point, but then you tell me about some of the things you had to do to get in. And I'm like, huh, <laughs> interesting choice, but you were 18. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's like, so much, no, thank you. Um, but, you know, I think what's really important about the Greek experience is I do think that this is another arm of student advocacy, student organizations, uh, student led everything when it comes to leadership. Um, even when you look at the uh, the coat of arms for many of our organizations and what each element means, uh, what the Greek words mean themselves, much of it has to do with yes sisterhood uh brotherhood service um and also this higher element of again i think a lot of people assume that oh you just you know joined a, a sorority a sisterhood and all it is is fun and games and parties and lots of drinking and alcohol and so forth and all these stereotypes that did not hold for me in my experience in fact are exactly counter to my experience um and and i think that's a counter to whiteness though lisa you know when it comes to that piece that no in fact yeah. uh black greek lettered organizations no you will not be drinking you will not be you know all these things that are stereotypes um that are just not true and so you know i like debunking those stereotypes i like knowing uh, or sharing with people about my organization and knowing that there was an academic standard to even be here. Even on the graduate level, if you want to become a member as a graduate member, there's still academic standards for membership. And so, you know, given that it's, uh, I love that there's a soft place to land for African-Americans that are in higher education, especially at predominantly white institutions, these uh our chapters are all over the world at all different types of institutions my line sister shout out to chevalier is uh she's over in uh in the uk and they are formulating their own interest group and chapter of aka in the uk in fact uh vice president kamala harris was over there visiting and so they coordinated an event around her she is also a member of my sorority so you know those types of things where you can see your members up on the hill advocating for things that are important in the community or the majority of the time when you go see you know go to the boys and girls club or go to a volunteer event and you see a member of a greek lettered organization with their letters on with their jacket on with their hat on representing their organization um and knowing so many prominent figures in specifically the civil rights movement in this country were also members of these organizations yeah if you lisa to use your phrasing if if folks that don't know greek life well especially black greek life scratch a little bit deeper they will see that it's not um it's not a movie it's not the stereotypes that you see on tv there's a lot more 
a lot more to it and it's a lot of work <laughs> i've been uh now i'm now a silver sore which means that i've been a member for at least 25 years y'all didn't hear that because i'm still beautiful and young and gorgeous and all those good things um, but i've been a member for going into 26 years now and it's a lot of hard work but proud work because you see the elements of it in your community um and lots of folks that are not in the system don't know that don't get that they just assume that it's just another another group of loud people that jump around and show up at step shows and entertain. And that's like 1% of what we do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, step shows aside, I think that your earlier point around the ref, like uh, kind of a popular understanding of Greek life is a product of whiteness, right? So like certainly when I came to the United States and had zero knowledge of Greek life other than I knew it existed, I'm conceptualizing a Greek life from movies, right? Um, and so the only representation in movies has been for the longest time, less so now, but still overwhelmingly white, right? White sororities and fraternities. And so that's how I understood it. I wasn't even thinking about the fact that um, that, ex that lack of racial diversity in fraternities and sororities was historically intentional, right? Like I'm just thinking yes. these are fraternities and sororities and anyone can join yes. them. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but you know, that like, as I learned and so kind of coming to better understand both the system and then the ways in which um, non-white Greek organizations have risen up in response to and resistance to this kind of dominant narrative, I think is a really important part of it. I don't know, I don't know the timeline. So I don't know like when your sorority was founded the year um, and how that aligns with sororities that are predominantly white. Like I don't know where it all fits together, but- Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. So we, we were founded in 1908 as the first uh, historically black Greek lettered sorority. Um, the first Black Greek lettered fraternity was in uh, 1906. And so, you know, given that, I don't know the white Greek system at all, the social Greek system at all, but that's a great question um, to think about um, because, you know, depending on the Greek lettered organization and the school where they were founded, that also can show uh, a reflection of, is this another chapter of the larger organization and or is it flying in the face of social white Greekdom that also did not include us at the very same time? Because we could be expanding just because we're expanding, or it could be very clear about the lack right. of integration, the lack of acceptance, all those things, especially in an educational environment that's already pretty hostile. Yeah, I mean, those two dates, I mean, turn of the century, you're still looking at significant segregation, significant discrimination, um, much more explicit, I guess, because that still exists to that degree today, but it's just a little more undercover. Um, so yeah, I think there is a historical context to this, right? Um, as well as then how you described the value and importance of being a member of AKA. Um, and I was going to ask you about Vice President Harris, because I wasn't sure, but she is. Okay. Yes, she is. And what's interesting is that um, for those that are not aware of how kind of the system works, um, chapters, uh, so you can have the larger organization, such as Alpha Kappa Alpha, and then each chapter is named as it's founded based on the Greek alphabet. 
So alpha chapter is always the first chapter of the large organization. Then you go through beta, gamma, et cetera, all the way through the alphabet. Uh, Vice President Harris was initiated into my sorority at Howard University, which is the alpha chapter, the originating chapter, which makes it even more interesting, right? Um, but yes, yeah, she is a member and, you know, but you, it's a great question that you're asking though, because Greek lettered organizations also have what's called honorary membership for those that are very prestigious in their craft or in their area or industry. So, you know, she, even though she came into the organization as an undergrad, being someone as prominent as the vice president of the United States, if she wasn't a member, she could have been invited as an honorary member later on in life. For example, other folks have been invited as honorary as well. But yeah, mm -hmm. she's a member. But now to your point, Lisa, of what you were saying about timeline and also location, you know, if we think about the universities where each one was founded, let's be clear, not all of them were historically black institutions, many, but not all. So uh, the Alphas were founded at Cornell University, aka at Howard, like I just mentioned. The Kappas founded at Indiana. Uh, the Qs, the Deltas, uh, Sigmas, uh, Zetas, all founded at Howard University. Sigma Gamma Rho, Butler University, and then back here to Maryland for Iota Phi Theta at Morgan State. So, you know, that's what makes things interesting. Those are all the Alpha chapters. Once we start looking at the Beta chapters, Gamma chapters going on down the line, I would love to see kind of like this interactive Wolf Blitzer map of, you know, did it, did we start at historically black institutions and then start panning out to predominantly white institutions for different reasons? That makes the whole story even more interesting. Yeah. So I do not have the tech skills to create that, but I think it's an excellent Neither. idea. <laughs> Should anyone be listening and have time on their hands and the technological skill to do that, I think that would be a fabulous project. If it doesn't already exist, right? It might. It might be out there. You never know. It might yeah. be somebody much brighter than us with the tech probably has it yeah. down pat at this point. So, but, you know, I think it's important as part of the history of this country, given, you know, the number of folks that, like I mentioned, are uh, members of Greek lettered organizations, mm -hmm. the proliferation of our siblings in Latinx and Native American for Greek lettered fraternities and sororities in this country. And what that now means for their lived experience as students, right. I think is very important to name as well. Um, yeah. And I want to stand in support and solidarity of them because, you know, imagine being, for example, already a small number of, for example, Native American students on a predominantly white campus that come together to form something to do things in the community to educate people about their lived experience. And the, those chapters then have the resources and the support to be connected all across the country to other chapters at other schools. Mm -hmm. It, it uh, makes the isolation, the sense of belonging, all of that, that shifts as a result of these chapters and organizations existing. So I think all that's powerful and we need to support those folks as well. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's a fabulous place to wrap up this week's yeah unfazed unedited um good stuff i'm still learning like i just i learned some more stuff again in this 10 minute conversation about uh greek letter organizations in the black community and um i think i will yes. continue to learn because i really am starting from a very behind place <laughs> <laughs>
Well, look, I'm just grateful that you're open to learning and knowing what all this is about. I think, um, Lisa, most people start with the colors. They're like, okay, you're in the pink sorority or the red sorority. That, that's where people start, right? Um, which I appreciate. But um, but yeah, this has been a fun podcast. Hopefully we covered lots of different things. Of course, as you know, we set this up in phases so things may connect, they may not, and that's okay. Um, but we're following the uh, MLK holiday and going through uh, so many Founders Days of Black Greek Letter organizations. Um, and then hopefully Lisa and I will be giving you a little bit of a, a recap of uh, travel. Can y'all believe Lisa and I will be in the same place at the same time? Miracle. So um, hopefully we'll be able to share some of the things that we're, we'll be experiencing in our next podcast. But until then, make sure that you go to YouTube and find us there. Go to Instagram and find us there. LinkedIn, of course, and find us there. And if you have questions, we're always interested in uh, thinking out loud with you all about your questions. So please send us questions to info at unfazedpodcast.com. And of course, go to the website, unfazedpodcast.com. Like us, subscribe to us, leave a review, share this with your people, tell them to share this with their people's people, all of that. Um, as we all continue in this phase of life. So until next time, Lisa, it's a wrap. All right. See you soon.